0: Welcome everybody back to the channel. We are going to continue our talk through discovering what progressive Christianity truly believes. So I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving and I hope you're getting ready for the holiday season, the Christmas season that is quickly or really in many cases already upon us. Stay tuned as we will continue a crash course on progressive Christianity starting right now. Welcome to the Doctrine Matters Podcast, a tool to help believers rediscover true biblical doctrine and to help them understand and live out their faith in their homes, in their churches, and in their communities. Thank you for listening to this episode. Let's get right to it. Ferry Deo Gloria Well, hello, everybody. As mentioned in the intro, I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving and I hope that you are getting geared up and ready for the Christmas season. We would call that, as believers, the Advent season as we look back at the arrival of our King Jesus and look forward to his second arrival, at his second coming when he will make all things new as he separates the wicked from the unrighteous. So, we are in the Advent season, and uh, today we're going to continue what we started a couple of weeks ago. And we're going to be continuing to look at progressive Christianity and exactly what they believe. Now, I had a couple of people reach out to me recently after they watched that or listened to that first episode. And we're just bewildered, kind of like I was during the the, the whole episode. Is I just can't believe that progressive Christians believe the way they believe. And I would dare not call them Christians at all, to be honest. Just I think they made that clear in the first teaching. Through this crash course on progressive Christianity. So if you're new here, I would encourage you, if you've stumbled upon this video, to go back and listen to the first video or the first episode regarding progressive Christianity. If you're not watching on YouTube, you can listen on your platform, podcast platform, but uh, go back and listen to the last episode and it'll get you caught up to the second episode of what we're doing now. And uh, we're going to continue to listen to uh, this pastor Josh from Grace Point Church in Nashville, Tennessee. This is a progressive church, uh, founded by Stan Mitchell, who is a, also a progressive "quote unquote" Christian. I guess Pastor Josh is now the newest pastor to take over this. I don't know how long he's been there, again, but either way, we're going to jump right into this. And I can ju- I can be honest with you, I've watched about thirty seconds of it, and the thirty seconds I heard I, a lot like last episode. So we're going to listen to this pretty much. Uh, for the first time together. And uh, I'll make some comments along the way, but I think it's important. Why are you doing this? It's important because progressive Christianity is really making a push in this world. So I think it's important for us to know exactly what people are believing in the name of God and in the name of Christ, and even using the Bible to kind of make their claims. And it, again, If you watched last episode or listened to the last episode, they really don't even use the Bible to make their claims. A lot of this is based off of feelings and emotions and thoughts and maybe past hurts uh, from previous churches as they were growing up. But um, basically, they're deconstructing and, and really building back up on exactly what they believe based off their thoughts and emotions. So let's just get into this second one. And I know that they're going to be talking about Christ. They're going to be talking about the atonement. And I just can't wait to hear what all they have to say. So uh, without further ado, let's just get into this.
1: We are, last week we began a series called The Crash Course on Progressive Christianity. Um, And we began the series, and really the reason we're doing this series is because for lots of us, we know what we no longer believe. We know what we can't affirm. We know what we've left behind. But being able to begin to reimagine our faith and articulate something different can be a bit of a challenge. And so in this series, I'm just trying to articulate how I have come to understand progressive Christianity. It's
0: if how- you're listening, I just sped him up just a little bit. I think we can still tell. I sped up the last episode, so I'm going to go ahead and speed him up here just so we can get through this a little faster together.
1: Grace Point has kind of talked about progressive Christianity for a while now. Um, if you hear this series and you're like, ah, I don't really agree with that, that's okay. You can still be a part of our community. Um, that's it's not. This is not a litmus test series. This is just a I want to give you some language if you're trying to figure out how maybe to reframe, reimagine, reclaim the Christian tradition through a progressive lens. That's what I want to offer to you. Last week, we began the series by talking about the central difference between uh, kind of a more conservative Christianity and progressive Christianity the way we see it. Please, every time I say progressive Christianity, will you just assume I'm saying the way I see it? Is that cool? Can we just assume that I'm not speaking for all progressive Christians everywhere? Uh, I'm just talking about how I've come to see and understand this idea.
0: We began by talking... Let me just say from a, a right out of the gate, he has just acknowledged that this is how he sees it. So we're talking about a man who is really taking the scripture or even the, the the whole kit and caboodle of Christianity and trying to reshape it and reclaim it through a progressive lens. And he has just admitted that this is what he believes. And um, so we can just assume that when he is speaking these things, this is his beliefs. And And that's a problem because... When pastors get behind a pulpit, or even if they sit at a little table like this, their main objective is to declare what the Lord has already said through the scriptures. And that is not what is happening here. So we're essentially having a man-made religion being birthed right in front of our eyes. Actually, it's already been birthed, but it's continuing to grow right in front of our eyes. And we're seeing man-made religions, man-made thoughts, man-made laws, man-made thinking process that would lead people to conform to what he believes and not what God has already said through his word. And as a matter of fact, I have yet to see a Bible on the table. Uh, and And I know that you may say, well, electronic Bibles, iPads, he does have an iPad, but we'll see how much Bible he actually uses. Last episode, he really used scripture to basically tear down and replace with what he thought is actually truth. So again, Some of you may be listening the first time, maybe think I'm being rude or mean in this, but I really, it's just for our clarification and uh, to understand what people are really believing in the name of Christ. So uh, just keep this in mind. This is not a man sitting at this table saying, thus saith the Lord. This is a man saying, this is what I believe. And I have messed up the video, so we'll try to get it back to where we were
1: often people think about people often think it's well progressive Christians are affirming. Of course we're affirming Reimagine our faith and articulate something different can be a bit of a challenge. And so in this series, I'm just trying to articulate how I have come to understand progressive Christianity. It's how grace point has kind of talked about progressive Christianity for a while now. Um, If you hear this series and you're like, "Ah, I don't really agree with that. That's okay. You can still be a part of our community. Um, That's it's not, this is not a litmus test series. This is just a, I want to give you some language. If you're trying to figure out how maybe to reframe, reimagine, reclaim, the Christian tradition through a progressive lens. That's what I want to offer to you. Last week, we began the series by talking about the central difference between kind of a more conservative Christianity and progressive Christianity the way we see it. Please, every time I say progressive Christianity, will you just assume I'm saying the way I see it? Is that cool? Can we just assume that it's, I'm not speaking for all progressive Christians everywhere? Uh, I'm just talking about how I've come to see and understand this idea. We began by talking about the central difference between conservative and progressive Christianity, which is uh, not what often people think about. People often think it's, well, progressive Christians are affirming. Of course, we're affirming. Progressive Christians don't believe in hell. No, we don't believe in hell. Progressive Christians, you know, don't believe in substitutionary. No, we don't believe in that. But that's not the central difference. The central difference is the starting point. Uh, Conservative Christianity often begins with this. You were born separated from God. We don't begin there. We begin with this reality. Every human being was born inherently united with God. And that's a fancy way of saying every human being is born connected with God. You are not born disconnected from God. You are not born.
0: And this is what we went through in the last episode. So you can continue to go through that. If you want to go back and listen, we, we kind of broke that down of what, it, what he's saying and what the Bible truly teaches. So uh, we, we started there as well.
1: A thousand or so. I mean, not many, just a few. And one of the questions, and for some people, the disagreement was nasty. Of course, it's the Internet. But some people seem to have genuine questions. And one of the questions, which is why I wanted to talk about Jesus this week and what it means to be Jesus centered, because one of the central questions we got when um, this went out was okay, if we are born united with God, connected with God, what's the point of Jesus? Like, why did Jesus live? Why did Jesus die? What, what do we need Jesus for if we were born inherently united with God? That's what I want to talk about today. What does it mean to be Jesus centered? Because we're progressive but also we're Christian. Now I understand that not everybody who's a part of Grace Point wears the label Christian and that's okay. I'm not going to try to convert you to that label today. I'm not interested in converting anybody. Actually, it's not quite true. I'm interested in converting people who are part of a toxic Christianity to a non-toxic Christianity. I'm deaf, I'm
0: Okay, so what I'm hearing is there are no Christians in the building, and if there are, they need to run far from this, because he's not interested in converting anyone to Christianity. He's interested in in converting people that are part of a toxic system, which he would call biblical Christianity or conservative Christianity even, and trying to make them cross over into this progressive Christianity and to believe the way that he believes and not the way the Bible sees. So he doesn't want to convert anyone to... Christianity, but the Bible makes it clear that that Paul is begging and imploring people to be reconciled with God. And the only way that you can be reconciled to God is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, which is something that I don't know, but it seems like they may deny. They don't believe in penal substitutionary atonement. So therefore, they don't need a substitute to die in their place, which means if they reject that, then there is really no need for Christ at all other than him being the second person of the Godhead. I'm willing to bet that what they're going to do is take all of the tender and loving moments of Jesus in the Bible and say that's what it means to be Jesus centered and to live like Jesus lived, leave the wrath, leave, leave all the table flipping, leave all of those things out of the equation, but just let's bring in the tender moments, the loving moments, the caring moments of Christ, and we're going to be talking about being Jesus-centered that way and being imitators of Christ. So there's really no need for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We just need to be like loving Jesus, which is what I call care-bearer theology. Again, um, true Christianity would would say, "I, I implore you to be reconciled to God in repentance and faith, And that's what we preach, the gospel, Christ crucified every Sunday, because we want to see people that are far off, that are walking in darkness, called into the light, be saved by grace through faith. We don't want to convert somebody to a thought process, for example if I wanted to convert everybody to believe the doctrine of election, I would stand up there and hammer on the doctrine of election and tell them why they should believe it. And why I I think that people that don't are wrong. And that's toxic. If you don't believe it and try to convert them that way, the Bible doesn't teach that that's a secondary issue. Anyway, the Bible says to teach Christ and Christ crucified in hopes of seeing those who are far off come near through the shed blood of Christ. And it's because of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can be reconciled to God. But the starting point is they're already good. They don't need a savior. They don't need Christ. So I don't want to preach this guy's message, but let's just see what he has to say as far as Jesus as we get into this.
1: Coming for you. But um, I'm not super interested in converting anybody else. Um, uh, that's, just not, that's just not what we're up to in the world. But I, I do want to talk about what it means for us as a, as a community to say we're a Christian church, that, that, Christian, that word Christ is part of that. Christ is connected to Jesus. What does it mean for us to be Jesus-centered? And I think that even the idea, the name Jesus comes with some baggage, doesn't it? Does anybody, when you talk about Jesus, maybe, I love Jesus. Can I just be honest about that? I love Jesus. Bigger fan than I've ever been in my entire life. But does anybody else, if you talk about Jesus anywhere outside of this space at Grace Point, you feel the need to qualify it with all sorts of, but not this Jesus and not this Jesus. Because we've encountered some Jesuses who've behaved badly in the public square. And so what does it mean for us to say that we are Jesus-centered? I wanna begin with something really important that addresses the question that got raised. For us, being Jesus-centered doesn't mean that we see Jesus as a means to an end. Much of the Christianity I was brought up in, Jesus was just that. Jesus was a mechanism through which we came into relationship with God. The whole point of Jesus wasn't the fact that he lived. It wasn't the fact that he taught. It wasn't the fact that he loved people, that he was inclusive, that he was compassionate. The most important things were that you believed some certain facts about Jesus's birth, that you believed he died, because of our sin that god needed jesus to die to make us right with god to somehow connect us with god and that he rose on the third day right that's the most important thing And even when you look at the ancient christian creeds what what is left out is that i think the thing that makes jesus significant which is the life he lived the human life he lived for us to be jesus-centered doesn't mean that for us jesus is a means to an end or a method.
0: let me just say that it's important to us the life that he lived for biblical christians for those who follow the real jesus of the bible it is important to look at the life he lived can we mimic that to an extent, yes, but we cannot be perfect and sinless in this life. So we cannot imitate his life to a perfection because he is the only perfect one. So uh, it, they it, it seems like they want to leave out the, the life of Jesus, but we, we are all in on the life of Jesus. As a matter of fact, we get a lot of our imitating Christ from his life because of who he was and who he is. So we don't throw it out, we don't disregard it, but we do have to understand that there are primary things about Christ that must be believed, and it, when it comes to these ancient, cre- ancient creeds and confessions, the death, burial, and resurrection has to be a centerpiece of those confessions and creeds, or else those confessions and creeds are worthless, because they have to have and contain the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, because that is the foundation of Christianity. That is the foundation of reconciliation with God. So we don't throw out the life of Christ. We just make some of the main things more prevalent in what we uh, put out in print, what we, what we say, what we do, what we preach. But we do preach the life of Christ as well because we believe that that's important.
1: Mechanism that gets us somewhere. Jesus isn't the thing that gets us. Like we don't believe in Jesus so that we can go to heaven when we die. That's not the point of the Jesus story. Uh, Dallas Willard, who's a Christian philosopher, he he called. uh, He said Christians often tend to be vampire Christians. Just keeping with the spooky season theme, he said uh, that Christians often tend to be vampire Christians. Do you you know what he meant by that? Um, That they uh, well one thing is that they glisten in the sunlight like diamonds. any Twilight fans in the room? You don't want to admit that. Oh, somebody does want to admit that publicly. Yes. Um, what, he didn't mean that. What he meant by vampire Christians is that there's this whole, like maybe billions of Christians who are sort of like this. We, we want Jesus for his blood. Speaking of the blood, you actually do the blood drive. I'm going to do it. That's going to be great. But we want Jesus for his blood. We need, we need a bloody Jesus because we need to be covered in the blood of Jesus because nothing but the blood will do, Right? Nothing but the blood will do. And that's sort of what many of us grew up believing about Jesus, that his life, believed, like trusting him, following him, all of that stuff is, is, is bonus content. The main thing is having an intellectual agreement that you're a sinner, that Jesus wasn't, and that God demanded Jesus' death to somehow make you right with God. When you begin with inherent union, when you begin that we are born...
0: I don't want to stop it too much, but I have to um, say this, because it's very important as we think about... The Bible and the blood. You know, he says that Christians have to have a bloody Jesus. We have to have the blood. And in fact, we do need the blood of Christ. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible that concerns the blood of Christ. It's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 that says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So we have to understand Old Testament sacrifices and then Christ as he ushers in the new covenant. The Old Covenant required animal sacrifices for forgiveness of sin. It required the shedding of blood. Now, when you move over into Jesus, he becomes the permanent sacrifice. He laid his own life down forever. This is a, 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 this is a sacrifice that will last for eternity. We'll never have to make another animal sacrifice again because Christ laid his life down once and for all. And we see in this text under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Think Old Covenant. Think, uh, think that, that we have to have this shedding of blood for the, for the forgiveness of sins. And then we move into this new covenant, this Jesus who laid down his life and shed his blood so there could be forgiveness of sin. And this would be a permanent sacrifice as opposed to a temporary sacrifice, meaning that the shedding of blood is definitely required. We must have a bloody Jesus. Now, we aren't just infatuated and, and, and have made this sort of an idol, of bloody Jesus, an idol. But without the shedding of blood, the, the passage here is clear. There is no forgiveness of sins. So we have to have the shed blood of Christ.
1: Born united with God, that takes the need for—no, oh, just think about this. If God actually needs to kill something to love you, we have way bigger problems.
0: Let me just clarify. Point of clarification here is that uh, this man did not give us scripture to back up why he believes that we are born good and united with God when we enter this world. He didn't give scripture to back that up. He just gave a picture of his own life when he had his firstborn child and said, how could God be loving and be separate? How could we be separated from God? So he used a, 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 a picture of his own son and not the scripture to back that claim up. So just make sure we're clear on that. So his starting point is already flawed because it's from a human perspective and not a biblical one.
1: Than We could ever possibly imagine if I am a better parent than God, we got to choose. And so we don't begin there. We don't begin with the need for God to kill things to love us. We begin with the fact that we are loved. We we, we do not see Jesus as a mechanism or as a means to an end second. And if I'm not already in trouble on the internet, this is going to get me there. Um, Jesus, being Jesus-centered does not mean that we see Jesus as our as the one and only exclusive path to the divine. It's just not how we see it.
0: Because they don't open their Bibles and they don't believe the Bible. They don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture or the infallibility of Scripture. They don't believe, thus saith the Lord. They don't believe that the Bible is the true word of God. And this is what you get when you don't believe the Bible to be true. Uh, then you get thoughts like this, and you have to totally negate what has already been said, what Jesus himself said. Jesus, John 14, 6, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, meaning himself. So they have already negated the scripture. They have already just thrown the scripture out, ripped the pages out of the scripture, and said, we don't believe that Jesus is the only way. But they love this Jesus. They want to be Jesus-centered, but they don't want to take what he said to be truth, So that is the passage, that is a one of the go-to passages to know that there are not multiple uh, paths that lead to God. It's only through Christ and the shedding of his blood that we can be reconciled to God and end up in eternity with him. So let's just see what he's going I, to say.
1: Let's put it really clean. I do not believe that Jesus is the one and only way that human beings interact with the divine. Why? Because I've known human beings who are not Christian, who are really wonderful human beings who have a deep, abiding relationship with their understanding of God. It's making their life better. It's helping them flourish. It's helping them be good humans in the world. Um, I do not think I need to convert them to my religion for that to be true. I do not think Jesus is the exclusive way to God. Now, I know what somebody's going to say. I can already, like, if it's Wednesday right now and somebody's listening to this and in the chat, like, John 14, six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yes, I'm aware of that Bible verse. I promise I've read it here's the thing. In, in, in the 9 a.m. service, the gospel of John came up a lot in the conversation at the end. And, and what we have to understand about John is John is written in the language of devotion. What I mean is, um, have you ever, how many of you have read the gospel of John? You ever notice how everything Jesus says in John basically isn't in any of the other gospels? You ever wondered about that? Like in, in Mark, you have Jesus going, don't tell anyone about me, which is kind of the opposite. <laughs> and in John, he's going, I'm God. Why? Well, John was written much later, and John is essentially writing for his community, and John is taking the language of the community and putting it on the lips of Jesus. And so when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that is not the historical Jesus speaking, that is John speaking. That is John saying, for us as a community, Jesus is the way we contact the divine. Amen. Me too. What that doesn't mean is that for everybody everywhere, Jesus is the only way they can contact the divine.
0: There again, let's just say that he's right. Right. Let's just say that that uh, that John's speaking for himself. He's putting words in Jesus' mouth. Let's just say that's happened. That doesn't negate the fact that the Bible itself teaches us that the Bible was written, yes, by men, but as the Spirit carried them along. So from that, we can conclude that John 14, 6 was written by God and not necessarily by John. John was used to write in his style, the way that he writes. But the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the one that is just as God as the Father, just as much God as the Son, carried John along as he wrote this. And that's where we see a big disconnect again, as they don't believe this. If they believe this, then, then then we wouldn't be having a crash course in progressive Christianity. If they believe the Bible to be true and to be the true word of God and to be inerrant and infallible, then we wouldn't have anything uh, any, anywhere close to this being a crash course in progressive Christianity. It would be a crash course in Christianity, true biblical Christianity. But as it stands, if you once you unhitch your worldview from the Bible, you are in major, major trouble so uh that's the problem they can see the scriptures but they don't believe them just because of what they believe they believe this is not the word of god matter of fact just again i, I believe I, I mentioned this scripture in the last episode but i want it's worth mentioning here again second peter chapter 1 verses 20 and 21 say this but know this first of all that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation so peter Would take what he just said and put an X in that because that's no good. What this pastor just said is rubbish in light of what Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter or 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. This guy is saying rubbish and Peter would refute it boldly here because no matter of scripture is of one's own interpretation. So, John speaking. For Jesus, putting words in his mouth, speaking what John wanted to say, absolutely not. Speaking what God wanted him to say, writing what God wanted him to say, and verse 21 goes on to say, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from not their own interpretation, not their own thoughts, not their own emotions, but from God. But you're going to have a hard time getting people like this to recognize that and understand that because they have unhitched The Bible from their worldview, and now they have a worldview that will come crashing down on the day of judgment. It does not have a firm foundation, nor can it have a firm foundation. So uh, that's just an issue, and we'll never get anywhere with a a broken, actually no foundation. This is a a foundation of sand. And we, we intuitively
1: recognize this, because one of the questions that often comes up is, well, but what about people who have never heard of Jesus? It's sort of like the age accountability conversation last week. We've painted ourselves into a corner. You have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven when you die. What about people who are never given the opportunity? We have no text to back this up, but they are grandfathered in.
0: <laughs> no, they're not. I don't, I don't understand what he th- where he's getting this information from. But, but we have to believe the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God, the scripture teaches us that it's that's why the the doctrine of election has to be shored up, because those that have never heard the name of Jesus, if they do, God will make a way for them to hear it. God will send people to wherever they are. And if they die in their sin and they don't have never heard the name of Jesus, then there's even no excuse there. Romans chapter one teaches us that. So this is nobody's grandfathered into anything here. Nobody's grandfathered into Christianity. God in his sovereignty moves people where he wills to allow people to hear the gospel because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans chapter 10. So God in his sovereignty and in his providence will move people like puzzle pieces almost coming together so that those who he has declared will hear the gospel, repent, and believe will definitely hear the gospel, repent and believe. So nobody is grandfathered in. So even now he is speaking a, a damnable lie against biblical Christianity because that's simply not true. They get in because God surely would not hold you accountable. But then there
1: are other Christian theologians who will go, not so fast. I think they go to hell. What? God holds you accountable for information you were never given? I think deep within our theology, some of the pushback and questions to it and some of the weird things we construct to try to get around them should be letting us know we are creating a theology that's almost impossible to live and breathe under. So I just want to say this. I don't think everybody needs to become Christian. I actually think we need faithful Muslims to be Muslim and we need faithful Jewish people to be Jewish and we need faithful Buddhists to be Buddhist, And we need faithful people in all of their traditions to be the best possible humans they can be in the world.
0: And there it is folks. I think if we could wrap progressive Christianity and we're only a a sermon and a half through about five sermons. I think if we could put a bow on progressive Christianity, it would be humanism. You'd be just be the best person you could be. Be a good person. Be uh, be a person that people like. Be a person that people can trust. People be a person that is responsible. And yes, we we believe those things in Christianity, but we wouldn't say Muslims be your best Muslim, uh, Jews be ju- be your best at being a Jew. We would say you need Christ, and you need to be converted. You need to repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you look at at, at Islam as a whole and you really start to get down into what they believe, Islam is not a peaceful religion. But according to this, if every Muslim would just be their best Muslim, then their best Muslims, depending on what sect they're in, would be running around killing every Christian, including those who would be very inclusive to homosexuals. If you just spend some time looking at Islam and some of those things and the different sects that go with that, uh, you would find that most of Islam is not a is not a religion of peace. And this guy's looking for for peace on earth and goodwill toward men, but that only comes as uh, from God, not from man. And this highly flawed theology that he has even constructed himself is really troubling. As he says, that biblical theologians and biblical Christians have created a theology that is hard to live under. Uh, I, I think this is harder to live under than than what biblical Christianity would teach, because you're you're creating or trying to create a world full of rainbows, unicorns, and 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 all things care bears and and cotton candy, and, and it just it's not going to hold up or work with that kind of worldview and that framework. It's just it's just a it's just all going to come crashing down
1: many Christians were behaving badly to be better? But what often happens under this idea of Jesus being the exclusive way to God, it has become a pretext and a cover-up for all sorts of human atrocity. I mean, in reality, the whole idea of expanding the message of Jesus, the Great Commission, taking Jesus to all the world, really was just a cover-up for colonialism. Because what happened in all these places where missionaries from Europe came to the Americas, and what did they do? They offered the Bible and they took the land right? They offered doctrinal propositions and enslaved people. And they used the very scriptures they were giving uh, to other people as a proof text for why what they were doing was biblical.
0: The idea of people do that every single day still, but that doesn't make it right. That doesn't make what they did right. That doesn't make what's happening now right when people use the scriptures to do evil things. That's not right. But that doesn't make the Scripture sinful. That doesn't make the, the Bible sinful in some sort of way. That doesn't make the Bible uh, just to be thrown out because people have used it not for good but for selfish gain and for evil. you you got to separate fallen sinful people and the Scripture, the two. Uh, those those two things, you can't hold somebody with that has done evil— and then say, well, because they've used the Scripture to do evil, now the Scripture's evil in and of itself, and we're going to have to recreate and rethink our whole theology based off of what that person has done, that fallen human. But if everybody is born good and everybody is born in right standing with God, why would there even be evil would be the question that I have to ask. If we're born good, we're born in right standing with God, then why on earth would we ever— have to talk about sin in the first place is because we live in a fallen world.
1: We need to take Jesus to all the places Jesus isn't. I I get how people can read that from the scripture, but I don't think we understand the unbelievable human toll that has taken through human history. And so I think it's important for us to say, uh, as progressive Christians, I have no desire to convert people from other religions to my religion. Uh, And actually, when I'm around people and engage with people in other religions, it actually enriches my experience of my own. Because when I can see them celebrating and being transformed by theirs, it allows me to come to my own with new eyes to be transformed and to celebrate my own tradition. All right, so I don't believe Jesus is an exclusive way to God. And the way I put it is this. When the language of devotion, like in John 14, 6, when the language of devotion is literalized and becomes a litmus test, it can become a pretext for all sorts of terrible, traumatic, harmful ideologies. Are you with me? It's just how it's worked through human history. And so I think we just need to acknowledge that. I think it's, I think it's important to say, I don't believe Jesus is somebody from somewhere else. But that's sort of how he gets portrayed, right? It's sort, Jesus is almost like a Superman figure who he, he looks kind of like us right? But he can fly, (laughs) right? Like at the end of the gospels, he kind of does fly. So there's that. Um, But this idea that Jesus sort of seems like us, but he's really not like us. He he looks kind of human. He may seem like a human, but he's just not one of us. There's this other piece that being Jesus-centered doesn't mean believing necessarily a lot of doctrines about Jesus. I want to go further and say, um, being Jesus-centered, and I'm going to come back to this in a minute, so don't let gasp. Being Jesus-centered doesn't necessarily mean believing in Jesus, I think it can mean something way different
0: and you can be Jesus centered. And everything is something way different with progressive Christianity. What did he say? Being Jesus centered doesn't mean that you believe in Jesus. Here we are. We're measuring ourselves up to a good man. Now Jesus was probably just a good man. He's not a savior. He is, um, you know, just a good man to emulate and you don't have to believe in him. Just be like him, act like him. This is, this is silly man, this is it's just, I don't understand what, I guess I can I can see the appeal to this because there is no accountability for sin. There's no, there's no um, judgment. There's no wrath in this. There is no conversion needed in this. It's just a feel-good place to come hear about what you think is God, but you're, you're hearing about a God that's fashioned out of someone's own thoughts and emotions and not the God of the Bible.
1: And not see Jesus as a white American, capitalist, Christian nationalist, anti-immigrant, anti-LGBTQ+, anti-women, pro-billionaire, believer in trickle-down economics, or that people should pull themselves up by their bootstraps.
0: <clears throat> I would actually argue. There are people who believe that Jesus was a white American, that he had long flowing hair, and that's simply not true. They believe that he was a capitalist. He was all these things. That's that He is making a mockery of jesus if you ask me along with other people that believe this jesus is not anti-immigrant he is not pro-billionaire jesus is all about the glory of god and if you were to see jesus in the flesh he would not be white he would not be from america those are correct statements So we we can't think about Jesus that way, but we can't also think even those people, those people that profess to be Christians of, of being biblical Christians who have fashioned the Jesus out of what they want they're in sin as well. So I can't sit here and say that this progressive Christian is not a Christian at all without looking at the same people that would claim to be in the Christian camp, and they're making a Jesus out of their own likeness, then those people are in sin as well. And if they don't repent and believe on the true Jesus Christ, then they too will bust hell wide open, and they're not Christian. So I can't pick on one without looking at the other who professes to be in our camp and not say the same thing about them. The problem is nobody wants to talk about who Jesus really is. He's God in the flesh, and he's about the glory of God and His Father's business, and that was to die for the sins of many, and those can be reconciled to God through His blood, from uh, by repentance and faith. And nobody wants to talk about that because everybody wants to take all of these other things and run with it and talk about different things. So um, this is just very problematic at, at its very fundamental level. But this is this is it. Just it it's. It's not good, y'all. This is not Christianity. It should not be labeled as such. It should just be called progressive talks in the building and not a church. This is not a church.
1: That Jesus is one we definitely made up and one we should definitely deconstruct. What is it, does it mean to be Jesus-centered then? For me, it begins with this. I believe Jesus is one of us. I believe Jesus is one of us. I believe Jesus was a human being. I believe that other human beings sense the divine in him. Absolutely. I believe other human beings believe that by being close to him, they in some way came closer to what the word God means. Absolutely believe that's true. I think Jesus was a prophet who preached a vision of God that centered the marginalized and challenged the way the Roman empire and all empires before and since and ever will be challenged the way they've carved up the world. I don't believe Jesus being being Jesus centered means we believe in Jesus. I think being Jesus centered means we believe Jesus. And there is a difference. For example, Detail. I believe in the idea that the eating idea. fried foods is bad for you. Mm. Who else believes in that idea? Just, just, I mean, I'm not talking about what your practice is. I'm saying, objectively, you know eating less things dredged in flour would be better for your health. Let's see. All right, we got some conspiracy theorists in the room like, I'll believe it when I see the data. You know, like, no, like, it's bad for you, right? I believe in that idea. But if you look at the way I live my life, I don't believe it. Because I love a good chicken tender. (laughs) Amen? Amen? We just became Pentecostal over chicken tenders. (laughs) Was it Jesus? No, it was deep fried chicken that got us there. You see, there's a difference in, in believing in something as an idea, as a doctrine, as a, like, yeah, 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 I believe in all these things. There are Christians all over the world this morning, gathering in church, assenting to things that they actually probably don't believe. But their belonging is so tied to it that we believe in it.
0: Let me address that real quick. He just basically said there are, quote, unquote, I'm going to air quote this, quote, unquote, Christians who are in churches all across the country this morning. This is obviously a Sunday morning teaching that are there and have no idea what they believe in. They don't believe in the things that are being their their belonging is tied to the church. So in the South, we would call this kind of a social club type mentality of people who are just showing up to church because that's what you do. No, you're just showing up to church because you want to do things in the church and have a say-so in the church and have a, a, a vote of the direction of the church when really you have no clue what the church is and what it stands for. So there are people that attend churches uh, th- that that don't know Christ. They're just there because that's where their sense of belonging is. Now, we would say, I would say, I think all of biblical Christianity and true Christians in this world would say that those that, that just go to church, because that's what you do on a Sunday, that's uh, you go to church to have a, a voice in the direction of the church. You go to the church to vote. You go because your daddy and your grandmama did and all those things. You just you just go. You just go to have fun. You just go to have friends. You just go to meet. You Just go to hang out. I would say that most of, if not all, of true biblical Christians would say that those people are likely no Christian at all unless there has been true repentance and faith. So, again, I think there's got to be a separation of things here. And just to label everybody in a church a Christian is not accurate either. And uh, I would say there's a lot of people in churches that have no, no understanding of why they're there. And if that's the case, then they're not Christians because they don't understand. And if they are a Christian, they need to be discipled heavily because they have not been told the reason they gather on the Lord's Day. And that is to worship. That is to give God glory. That is to build up the saints. That is to be encouraged. That is to even be convicted and admonished in the scriptures and then leave and scatter to be able to take the gospel to your communities and to your workplaces and in your homes and everywhere you find yourself. It's a That's just a, a small look at why you gather on Sunday. So. Anybody that is not in the true Christian faith doesn't understand that. They're just there for this social club mentality. And uh, so, again, there is a little work that had to be done there to say that not all people that go to churches are Christians. and We don't believe that as biblical Christians.
1: Believing Jesus means taking Jesus so seriously that we wrestle with what he taught and how he lived and we seek to embody it. Believing Jesus means that we work on loving our neighbor as ourselves, an idea that has been largely lost in Christianity. In the Here it comes. World.
0: This is what I mentioned earlier.
1: It means we work on loving our enemies, an idea which has largely been lost in Christianity in the modern world.
0: Being inclusive is it coming. It means that
1: we care about those who are marginalized, those who have been <laughs> oppressed and pushed out. We work and we use our energy and our resources and our creativity to figure out ways to bring people in, not push people out. Believing Jesus means that we take seriously his call to care for the least. It, it means that we think about how we use our resources how we use our energy and creativity. It means that we don't respond to people the way, maybe you may have this trouble, like you have the most creative, awful things to say back to people on the internet, and you just like, you you don't do it, but you really want to. Anybody else just have that kind of, thank you, a couple people, yeah. It means we take it so seriously that no, I actually don't want to, I don't want to treat people that way. Believing Jesus is way different. When you are Jesus-centered, you actually believe him. You actually take seriously his teaching. I think that being Jesus-centered means that we share his vision. And by the way, Jesus' vision was not for pie in the sky when you die. I think if we could go back in a time machine and sit down with Jesus and say, Jesus, you know, do you believe in an afterlife? I think he would say yes. I really think he would say yes. It was a new idea in Judaism. He seems to have embraced it. Is that what Jesus' mission and message was about? I don't think so at all. And if we put it, in, I'm going to put it in my words, but I think if I distill down what Jesus was up to and what he was doing, his vision was to work for a world for, in which humans flourished. Everybody flourished. I think that's what Jesus was up to
0: everybody flourished but then let's just let's just spend a second to get there you likely have an idea uh, it didn't take long to get there um, if every human being flourishes if that's why Jesus came if that's the the, the business of Christ then again we're throwing away the Bible because the Bible teaches consider it all joy this is James chapter one verse 2 Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, if we were to think about the trials and tribulations of our day, that is sometimes not what human flourishing looks like. We don't flourish in some of our circumstances, but we do grow in holiness and faithfulness in these circumstances and as we're thinking about trials and tribulations i can't help but think about one of my favorite passages in romans chapter 8 verse 18 that says for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us the sufferings of this present time that doesn't sound like human flourishing to me that sounds like when we suffer on this side of eternity we grow in holiness and faithfulness and we Romans 8, let's just flip the page here, Romans eight twenty eight. 28, and when we're suffering, when we're going through things, we know that God calls all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, now that's different from flourishing, working this good that is mentioned here is not what he means by flourishing, the good here comes here in just a second, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that's the good through our suffering, are flourishing. If we're flourishing in life, if that's all that we do, we're constantly flourishing as human beings, we will never need Christ at all. We will never need to lean on Christ. We will never need the Bible. And that's what he wants to, us to do here and believe is that we just, Jesus died, or I don't even think he died. I don't know if what he really hasn't said. Um, Jesus just came so that we could flourish and flock, and frolic, and play, and be be awesome with one another. And that's just simply not the biblical Jesus.
1: ...up to in the world, trying to create a movement that allowed everybody, even the, the most marginal and forgotten person, to be brought in so that they could thrive and flourish as God's beloved children. I think that's what Jesus was doing in the world. I think Jesus ends up being executed for his his message and his mission, not because uh, God's wrath needed to be satiated. I think Jesus died not because of divine wrath, but because of human wrath.
0: Oh, Oh, so basically Jesus died because there are people like biblical Christians like you and I who would say that homosexuality is a sin. Uh, Jesus was too inclusive. He loved too much. He cared too much about human beings. And the human people did not like that, so they killed him. This was a divine wrath. Jesus had to be the propitiation, First John says, the, the satisfaction of the wrath of God upon sin, which means, really quickly, that sin has to be dealt with. It has to be paid for, and it's going to be paid for in one of two ways. Quickly, it, was, it will either be paid for by you. And this, this quote-unquote Pastor Josh, and, and I hate to say this and sound this way, but it sounds like he is not a true believer. His sin will be paid for by himself. He will suffer for eternity, and although he doesn't believe in hell. That's fine. It's not fine, but, uh, I mean, it, it is what it is at this point. But uh, he doesn't believe in hell, but he will go there unless he truly repents of his sin and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, those who are in Christ, however, their sin has been paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ. So they will not be separated from God for all of eternity. They will be welcomed in and live with him forever. Uh, But there is this, the Bible's full of teaching that the wicked and the righteous, those are two different groups that are throughout all of human history. And one day they will be separated at last. The wicked from the righteous. Wicked will be ushered into hell for eternity. The righteous will be ushered ushered into heaven for eternity. But Jesus died for man, so that they can be reconciled to God, so the shedding of his blood could forgive, and therefore we would be saved
1: because from the beginning of time, we humans have been reaching out for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, deciding who lives and who dies, because Jesus ended up on the wrong end of an empire, just like people who have been inspired by his teaching have uh, ever since his life, right? people like Paul, wrong side of the empire because they were inspired by Jesus' teaching, people like Dr. King on the wrong side of the empire because they were inspired by the teaching of Jesus. People working for justice today on the wrong side of society in the empire because they are advocating for human flourishing and for justice for all of God's children. I do not think Jesus primarily exists as a means to an end for us. If, if there is any way, it's not to an afterlife, it's not to connection with God, it's to human flourishing. And so when I say we're Jesus-centered, this is what I'm talking about. That for me, I don't to speak for anybody else, but for me, I, I, I've tried to break up with Jesus for 20 years. Anybody else try to break up with Jesus? He just keeps leaving his toothbrush at your house. You just can't, can't shake him.
0: He just keeps. This is a problem with modern America is we make a joke about Jesus. Breaking up with Jesus. Why would you want to break up with the Savior who saved you and called you out of darkness into light? If you've truly been saved out of that, then you would never want Jesus to leave you or you leave him. Yes, you can slip back into sin. You can do things that you wouldn't want, you don't normally want to do, and there's forgiveness in that, but you don't want to be living your life apart from Christ at all if He has saved you, first and foremost. And this idea of breaking up with Jesus has filtered down into all of Christianity in some way, shape, or form, to now we talk about Jesus being our boyfriend. Jesus is not our boyfriend. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is God, and he would should not be belittled to being a boyfriend who we— Ask into our heart, or in this case, that we try to break up with who just keeps leaving his toothbrush at our house. And it's, and it's so disgusting to me that he is relating Jesus as someone who just sleeps over at your house every now and then, almost equating it with just sleeping around with people who keep leaving their toothbrush laying around their house and they won't take it with them when they go. So you can't break up with them because they're always there. And it's just a mockery being made out of Christ. And this is awful and it will be judged.
1: Popping up like a bad penny, like there's Jesus again. <laughs> I, and here's what it was for me: is I realized my, my deconstruction process. I was deconstructing all of the theology around Jesus, but what began to emerge as I sort of moved away generations and millennia of doctrine and dogma was this human life that was so powerful and so transformative that was such a healing presence and even a divine presence, not because he's from somewhere else, but because he had opened himself up to reality in profound ways. And and he sought to live from a place of honesty and genuineness and and, uh, compassion that this life I did not want to move away from. I wanted to move closer. Somebody who would rather bleed for his enemies than cause his enemies to bleed. My God, I want to be that person. I'm not currently that person. (laughs) <laughs> is that for me or you? <laughs> but God, I want to be that person. I do. And every time I try to move, a, I, could, I could leave Christian. <laughs> he just keeps popping up like a bad penny. Like I want to hear
0: what here, he man. just said again.
1: Uh, and here's what it was for me. is I realized my, my deconstruction process, I was deconstructing all of the theology around Jesus. But what began to emerge as I sort of moved away generations and millennia, of doctrine and dogma was this human life that was so powerful and so transformative that was such a healing presence and even a divine presence, not because he's from somewhere else, but because he had opened himself up to reality in profound ways and and he sought to live from a place of honesty and genuineness and and, uh, compassion that, that this life I did not want to move away from. I wanted to move closer. Somebody who would rather bleed for his enemies than cause his enemies to bleed. My God, I want to be that person. I'm not currently that person <laughs> is that for me or you <laughs> God I want to be that person
0: so in his who he wants to be and and who Christ is someone who bled for his enemies instead of making his enemies bleed that is exactly the Jesus that we as biblical Christians believe he died for the ungodly he died for the sinner uh, this it just doesn't make sense. There's there's just this circular thought here that just keeps going round and round and round, and he's trying to get away from Jesus, but he can't help but talk about the true biblical Jesus for some, whatever reason because you just can't help but talk about what's right when it is right. Listen, this is what I mean. He wants to be a man who dies for his enemies or bleeds for his enemies so his enemies don't bleed. This Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet enemies of God, while we were enemies of the cross, enemies of Christ, enemies of all things Bible, Christ still died for us. He died for his enemies. You and I were once his enemy. And also the Bible teaches us to uh, do good to your enemy. Don't cause your enemy to bleed. Do good for them. Uh, feed them when they're hungry. Give them water when they're thirsty. Give them clothes when they're naked. That's that's You heat burning coals on your enemies when you do that. This is the same Jesus he's talking about as the same Jesus we believe, that he did these things. He died for his enemies and then tells us to love our enemies. So the progressive Jesus has a little bit of the real Jesus in it. They just don't realize it.
1: I do. And every time I try to move, I I could leave Christianity way before I could leave Jesus. Because I, I found that so often the religion we built around him was not the religion he had. The religion he had was centered on this abundant understanding of God, and we've created a religion of scarcity. It was centered in a God who hears the cry of the oppressed, and for too long the church has tried to silence the cries of the oppressed. It's built on an understanding that with God and each other, we can actually change how things work. And not 300 or so years after his life, we erected monuments and cathedrals and religion that obscured and silenced his message. So for me to say I'm Jesus-centered, it means I want to get back as best I can to hearing the voice of this human being who called for a just and generous world. And I want to join him in making that world a reality right here, right now,
0: he wants a just and general world, but he doesn't want true justice. True justice would mean that he would have to believe in the only place where true justice could come from, and that is God himself. So he doesn't want a just world. He doesn't want a just God. If he did, then he would be rethinking every position that he has just laid out.
1: And I, I want to open it up for some conversation. I cut out a bunch of stuff I said at nine because it went way too long and I, was, I rambled way too much. Um, but I want to show you this. this is a, I've used this quote and every time I talk about Jesus like this, I'll probably use it. So no apologies, but I love it. It just, oh, it's so beautiful by Frederick Buechner. In the last analysis, you cannot pontificate, but only point. A Christian is one who points at Christ and says, I can't prove a thing. Can we just begin there? What's humility? I can't prove anything. Like we just totally wiped out apologetics, by the way. Like this idea, I'm going to defend the faith. If your faith needs defending, we're probably already in trouble. A Christian is the one who points at Christ says, I can't prove it. But there is something about his eyes and his voice. There's something about the way he carries his head, his hands, the way he carries his cross, the way he carries me. And I can't prove it.
0: Can't prove it. Cutting out apologetics. Let's cut out the Bible <laughs> once again. Are you ready? First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And I'm sure he's heard it, but I'm sure he doesn't want any part of it. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Not as a boyfriend who keeps his toothbrush at your house, but honor him as holy. H-O-L-Y, if you're listening, not holy, W-H-O-L-Y, holy. Always being prepared to make a defense, an apologia or apologia to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let's, Let's just cut out all the Bible because, you know, we don't need apologetics. But Peter tells us to give that defense, give that apologia, give that... Uh, d- tell why you believe in Christ. Tell, tell, uh, give a defense of your faith. But let's cut it out because this quote is beautiful.
1: Thank. <laughs> but there have been so many times on this journey that I've felt that last clause so deeply that I've been carried. And whether that was being carried by community people of people who have been the hands and feet of Jesus in my life, whether that was uh, being carried by the sense that when the work is hard and difficult and challenging and uh, that you, you have the sense that you're not alone. And at the weight of whatever cross it is you're trying to bear, you're not carrying it alone. That has been my experience. And that is why time and time again, I'll keep, I may may jettison most theological doctrines and categories in Christianity, but the one that I cannot let go of, or maybe the one that will not let go of me is that this human life of Jesus is the way in which I find the divine. It's not the way everybody does. And that's okay. It's the way I do.
0: Can you imagine? Praise God that my theology would say that the divine finds me, that I don't have to define him or find him. Excuse me. I don't have to find the divine. The divine finds me. In other words, I don't have to seek and search for God and try to find if try to figure him out. God finds me in my sin right where I'm at. And he calls me to himself by the power of the Holy spirit draws me to himself. And I can repent of my sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ only because the shed blood of Christ and only because of the burial, only because of the resurrection, only because of the ascension can I believe in this thing and be reconciled to God and have new life.
1: Imagine. Um, I tell my kids pretty much every day that they're the best kids in the world. All the time. And I sometimes tell them individually that. I hope they never talk to each other about it. <laughs> that could lead to some awkward conversations at home. Dad said I was the best. No, dad said I was the best. Can you imagine if I started writing about it putting decals on my car about it, going places where people are just trying to have a good time with signs about it, like going to all the playgrounds where people are hanging out with their kids and going, your kids are not as good as my kids. Objectively. Here's why my kids are cuter. I don't care what you say. They are. They're funnier. They're the next Einstein. You know what I'm saying? Like, can you imagine if I literalize that to the point that I was going around and trying to shove the brightness of my children down other people's throats, but that's not what I mean when I say that. It's not a competition. When I tell my kids they're the best, what I mean is in the language of devotion, I am unbelievably grateful that in this blip of time, I get that our timelines coincided and I get to be your dad. Best gig ever. But when you literalize the language of devotion, it becomes absurd. How many of you in the room are parents? How many of you think your kids are better than my kids? How dare you? I thought we were on the same page. No, of course you do. God bless you for it. If you didn't, I would be worried. I think Jesus is the best, but it's not a competition. And what I care about is human beings flourishing and finding wholeness in healing and and accessing the best parts of what it means to be human. And However they're doing that, I celebrate them. This is not a competition. But My God, I feel carried sometimes.
0: Well, let's just end it there, and we'll just say that he's ending with a picture of his own kids, his own life situation, his own thoughts, emotions, and what he sees around him and tries to relate that to a holy and perfect God, and that is just no way To do theology, that is no way to do Christianity. Is to base who God is and who Christ is off of your kids and your life and what you see and what you say and what you think and what you don't think and and just that is a poor way to do biblical exegesis. That is a poor way to do uh, belief in the divine or anything like that. So, as you can see, as we end this episode of the Doctrine Matters podcast, I would say this: that I believe. Uh, Once again, I've come to the conclusion so far that progressive Christianity is no Christianity at all. Now, my mind is open. Uh, I am willing to keep going. I think there are three more, maybe two more, of these crash course in progressive Christianity sermons that are coming down the pike, and uh, I'm willing for somebody to help change my mind. But at this point... I believe progressive Christianity to be a false Christianity, and I believe those who teach a false Christianity are teaching a false gospel, and the Bible is clear, Paul is clear in Galatians chapter 1, that anybody that teaches a different gospel, not that there is one, let that person be accursed, or in other words, uh, this is heavy language, let that person be damned to hell. So, Pastor Josh, I pray, would repent of his sin and believe on the true Lord Jesus Christ, And be saved and stop this talk of deconstructing. He was never saved to begin with. This is an apostate that is leading other people to hell. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict Pastor Josh, save him truly, and he would start leading a biblical church there in Nashville, Tennessee, a place that desperately needs a solid biblical church and more than one for sure. Uh, That's all for this episode. If you have any other thoughts or conclusions after listening to this episode, I'd love to hear them in the comments. But again, as mentioned, so far my mind has not been changed, and I see that this is just false, and progressive Christianity is no Christianity at all. Until next time, God bless.